Welcome to this E-Cystic Fibrosis Review Podcast. Today's program is a follow-up to our newsletter topic, Optimizing Nutrition in Individuals with Cystic Fibrosis. Our guest today is that issue's author, Dr. John Pohl, Professor of Pediatric Gastroenterology at the University of Utah in Salt Lake City. E-Cystic Fibrosis Review is jointly presented by the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine and the Institute for Johns Hopkins Nursing. This program is supported by educational grants from AbbVie Incorporated, Vertex Pharmaceuticals Incorporated, and Gilead Sciences. Learning objectives for this audio program are that after participating in this activity, the participant will demonstrate the ability to explain how appropriate dosing in pancreatic enzyme replacement therapy is associated with an improved body mass index as well as improved protein and fat absorption in individuals with cystic fibrosis, summarize how health-related quality of life is improved in individuals with CF with a good nutritional status and why a low BMI is a risk factor for mortality in adolescents with CF, and assess the current evidence describing the use of appetite stimulants to improve weight gain in individuals with CF. Dr. Pohl has disclosed that he has no relevant relationships with a commercial entity and that he will not be discussing the off-label or unapproved uses of any drugs or products in today's presentation. Dr. Pohl, welcome to this E-Cystic Fibrosis Review Podcast. Thank you for allowing me to speak today. In your newsletter issue, doctor, you describe the evidence basis showing that malnutrition is associated with a worse clinical prognosis in patients with cystic fibrosis, including a more rapid decline in pulmonary function. You reviewed new research into PERT dosing, the connection between nutritional status and health-related quality of life, prognostic markers of mortality, and the potential role of appetite stimulants in cystic fibrosis care. Our objective today is to better understand how some of that new information can be applied in the clinic. Uh, So start us out, if you would, please, Dr. Paul, by describing a patient's situation. A question is often asked in the cystic fibrosis clinic is how to maximize nutritional outcome. So let's say, for example, the parents of a three-year-old girl come to your clinic, the child has cystic fibrosis, and she is on pancreatic enzyme replacement therapy, or PERT. Well, the family has questions about how to maximize nutritional outcome. So how would we go about doing this? This child is already on pancreatic enzyme replacement therapy, so achieving optimal PERT dosing would seem to be the most obvious solution. What does the guidance say about PERT dosing? Well, we do know that there are guidelines for high dosing for pancreatic enzyme replacement therapy to prevent complications like fibrosing colonopathy. But there is definite intercenter variability for PERT between centers in the United States. This is where the patient registry for the Cystic Fibrosis Foundation is helpful. In the study by HALP, in the 2014 issue of Journal Pediatrics, it was found that PERT dosing was significantly higher in those top quartile centers compared to those lowest quartile centers. Keep in mind that uh, 179 pediatric cystic fibrosis programs were included in this study, divided into quartiles, and this included a total of 14,482 children with cystic fibrosis. So in this study by Haupt et al., multiple factors were looked at. Besides looking at PERT dosing, they looked at patient demographics, looked at pulmonary function testing, respiratory culture results, and then followed long-term growth and nutrition data. They took mean body mass index, or BMI, for each center, and then divided this into four quartiles for comparison. Again, those centers with higher pancreatic enzyme replacement therapy dosing had significantly higher enzyme dosing at 1,755 lipase units per kilogram per meal compared to lower quartile centers, which had a mean enzyme dosing of 1,628 lipase units per kilogram per meal. Now, what is interesting is that multivariate analysis occurred, and this difference in pancreatic enzyme replacement therapy, which was significant, remained significant even after adjustment for various covariates. Those high-performing centers, the ones in the top quartile, 
Did they have other aspects of care that may have helped increase body mass index? That's an interesting question. When the authors looked at top quartile programs, they noted that the patients were younger, they had less diagnoses of failure to thrive, and they had less diagnoses of malnutrition. Interestingly, these patients in the top quartile centers had less meconium ileus diagnosis, and they also had less history of steatorrhea. Other aspects of top programs were also noted to have cystic fibrosis diagnosed by newborn screening and had better parameters when they looked at lung function testing. For example, they found that these patients had improved forced expiratory volume in one second, predicted, also known as FEV 1%, the top quartile programs compared to the lower quartile programs. Finally, nutritional supplementation, and when I talk about nutritional supplementation, I talk about nasogastric or gastrostomy tube use, as well as acid blockade medication. Use of these supplements, as well as these medications, were higher in the top quartile centers compared to the lower quartile centers. You mentioned the potential risks of too high a dose of PERT. Uh, Explain it a little more to us, if you would, please. So, PERT dosing greater than 10,000 units of lipase per kilogram per day also dosing greater than 2,500 lipase units per kilogram per meal, appears to be associated with an increased risk of various side effects such as fibrosing colonopathy, and it is not recommending that PERT dosing should go above that level. We still do not know if there's an optimum PERT dose for absorption with cystic fibrosis, but lower dosing likely affects body mass index in the pediatric age range. And when you look between these centers, low PERT dosing may simply be a proxy marker for centers providing perhaps less aggressive cystic fibrosis care in regards to nutrition. In summary, care should be spent in your clinic calculating PERT dosing for patients with cystic fibrosis. You want to balance between optimizing nutrition with PERT while reducing the risk of fibrosing colonopathy. Uh, The patient you described for us, doctor, the parents asked you to maximize your nutritional outcome. What steps would you take to do that? In regards to the three-year-old patient we described in this case, I would first calculate PERT dosing, making sure I'm optimizing PERT dosing for adequate nutrition, but at the same time not going over the recommendations for fibrosis and colonopathy risk. At the same time, I would look at other aspects. For example, does the patient need further nutritional care, such as nasogastric or gastrostomy use, or would she benefit from acid suppression? Thank you, doctor. And we'll return with Dr. John Pohl from the University of Utah in just a moment. Hello, I'm Megan Ramsey, nurse practitioner and clinical coordinator for adults at the Johns Hopkins Cystic Fibrosis Program at the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine. I am one of the program directors of eCystic Fibrosis Review. These podcast programs will be provided on a regular basis to enable you to receive additional current, concise, peer-reviewed information through podcasting, a medium that is gaining wide acceptance throughout the medical community. In fact, today, there are over 5,000 medical podcasts. To receive credit for this educational activity and to review Hopkins policies, please go to our website at www.ecysticfibrosisreview.org. This podcast is part of eCystic Fibrosis Review, a bi-monthly email-delivered program available by subscribing. Each issue reviews a current literature on focused topics important to clinicians caring for patients with cystic fibrosis. Continuing education credit for each newsletter and each podcast is provided by the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine for Physicians and by the Institute for Johns Hopkins Nursing for Nurses. Subscription to E-Cystic Fibrosis Review is provided without charge, and nearly a 1,000 of our colleagues have already become subscribers. The topic-focused literature reviews 
help them keep up to date on issues critical to maintaining the quality of care for their patients. For more information, to register to receive e-cystic fibrosis review without charge and to access back issues, please go to www.ecysticfibrosisreview.org. Welcome back to this e-cystic fibrosis review podcast. I'm Bob Busker, managing editor of the program. Our topic is optimizing nutrition in individuals with cystic fibrosis. And our guest is Dr. John Pohl, professor of pediatric gastroenterology at the University of Utah in Salt Lake City. We've been looking at how some of the new information Dr. Pohl discussed in his newsletter issue can be applied in the clinic. So let's continue by looking at another patient situation. Doctor? For our next case, we have a 15-year-old girl with cystic fibrosis, and she's brought to clinic by her parents. The parents note that she's non-compliant with her pancreatic enzyme replacement therapy medication, and her body mass index has decreased from the 30th to the 5th percentile using standard CDC growth charts. Her BMI has decreased rather significantly, and she's been non-compliant with her PERT. Your thoughts on that, doctor? The practitioner always needs to be careful to make sure that compliance is being followed in complex situations like cystic fibrosis. Obviously, when you're dealing with a teenager, you're going to have some compliance issues potentially as the patient develops independence. Questions of compliance should be asked to the patient when they get older and to the parents, especially if you're seeing potential risk of malnutrition, such as a decrease in body mass index. It's been known for a long time that the use of PERT can improve fat absorption. Uh, but in your newsletter issue, you also describe the effect of PERT on protein absorption as well. Uh, talk to us a little more about that, if you would, please. When we think about pancreatic enzyme replacement therapy, we need to remember that PERT works by both helping with absorption of protein as well as fat. It can be difficult somewhat to measure protein absorption. However, England et al. recently came up with a unique method. They gave cystic fibrosis patients a meal labeled with both nitrogen spirulina protein, which is a protein from blue-green algae, as well as hydrogen-labeled phenylalanine. The spirulina protein is further broken down, while the hydrogen-labeled phenylalanine does not break down at all, and then the ratio is measured. This testing is interesting because it's not affected by phenylalanine metabolism. Using this method, the authors found some interesting results. They compared patients with cystic fibrosis, both adults and children, to a control group. And they found that patients with cystic fibrosis had significantly lower protease function, in other words, protein absorption, measured at 46.5% compared to control patients. During the study, PERT, or pancreatic enzyme replacement therapy, was given to these patients, and protein absorption increased up to 90.3% of control absorption. So it did not get all the way up to control absorption, but got up to 90.3%, so very close, with maximum digestion at approximately 80 minutes. Furthermore, no significant difference was seen in protein digestion between the adult and pediatric patients with cystic fibrosis, and there was no significant difference in protein digestion between patients with cystic fibrosis regardless of their delta F508 mutation status, regardless if they were in nutritional failure or not, and regardless of their lung function. I want to go back to this patient, this adolescent girl, and her significant decrease in BMI, as you noted, from the 30th to the 5th percentile. What might her weight loss suggest about an increased risk of mortality? This certainly could suggest an increased risk of mortality. A recent article by Holzabos et al. looked at adolescent patients with cystic fibrosis. They used a cycle ergometer to look at cardiopulmonary exercise testing. And using a multivariate analysis of these adolescents with cystic fibrosis, they found that a model of FEV1% predicted, peak ventilatory coolant ratio, as well as body mass index was predictive of mortality. Furthermore, when they looked at this study group in a longitudinal fashion by Kaplan Meier analysis, by looking at these three risk factors, 
they found that patients with two or three of these risk factors had a significant increase of risk of mortality. On the other hand, patients with three risk factors had a significantly greater risk of mortality compared to those patients with only one or two of those risk factors, with, again, those three risk factors being FEV1% predicted, peak ventilatory equivalent ratio, and body mass index. To wrap up this patient we've been discussing, doctor, what would be your recommendations for her? My recommendations for this patient, as well as her family, would be to look at her nutrition and to make sure we're maintaining good use of pancreatic enzyme replacement therapy, knowing that PERT helps both fat and protein absorption. Finally, knowing that there's a multivariate analysis that shows risk of mortality in this teenage population, I would make sure I address her pulmonary function as well as her body mass index, knowing that body mass index being low can be a risk for increased mortality in the adolescent population. I'm especially worried about her noncompliance in regards to her body mass index, as there's a correlation between a low body mass index and pulmonary function. I want to preserve her lung function long-term, and if she is not maintaining an adequate body mass index, she's at risk. Well, thank you for that case and discussion, Dr. Paul. Let me ask you to bring us one more patient now, if you would, please. Our final case involves a 12-year-old boy with cystic fibrosis, and he comes to clinic with his parents. Now, the parents are concerned about his weight. They note his body mass index is at the 10th percentile. Over time, they note he's become more withdrawn, and he looks different from his friends. They ask if he would benefit from an appetite stimulant. So we're looking at a 12-year-old boy, a pubescent preteen. And his problem, he doesn't fit in, he looks different from his friends, and so he's become withdrawn. That all seems to come under the heading of health-related quality of life. It's easy to assume that it may be worse in patients with cystic fibrosis, but what data actually exists to evidence that assumption? A recent study by Schaff et al. in the Journal of Cystic Fibrosis looked at patients in the Midwest part of the United States, specifically Wisconsin. They looked at nutritional parameters in regards to a health-related quality of life testing obtained via the Cystic Fibrosis Questionnaire, which was applied annually by interview or self-administration for three years during regular clinic visits. The study had some interesting results. Both height Z-scores and body mass index Z-scores had a significantly positive association with physical functioning and body image. What does this mean? Well, in other words, physical functioning and body image dimensions improved as height Z-scores improved, in other words, as, as patients became taller, or as their body mass index improved as well, or as they gained weight. A positive weight Z-score association was also seen with physical functioning and body image. These health-related quality-of-life scores, were there differences between the males and females who were tested? There was a difference between girls and boys. Girls showed a positive association between height Z-score and eating disturbances. Also, there was a positive association between physical functioning and height Z-score and body mass index Z-score. Boys, on the other hand, had a positive association between body image and height Z-score. The cystic fibrosis questionnaire score was then evaluated to determine a mostly low score. A mostly low score was defined as having a score less than 66. A mostly low score was seen between short stature and eating disturbances, as well as being between a goal BMI and body image. Improving nutrition over time may prevent a decline in health-related quality of life in cystic fibrosis patients, again, emphasizing the importance of nutrition. So these parents are asking you about appetite stimulants. Uh, what would you tell them? Have appetite stimulants been shown to be helpful in cystic fibrosis care? What does the evidence say? The long-term efficacy of appetite stimulants in the care of cystic fibrosis is not known. A recent Cochrane review by Chinook et al. looked at two appetite stimulants that are commonly used in pediatric and adult care, cyproheptadine hydrochloride and magestral acetate. 
Now, they were very restrictive in their studies, making sure that the studies that they reviewed were placebo-controlled, and only three studies existed which studied either cyproheptadine hydrochloride or magestrol acetate. They found that appetite stimulant use may be helpful in improving weight gain in the short term, but it is unknown if appetite stimulants are helpful long-term. There are side effects of these two appetite stimulants. Cyproheptadine hydrochloride can cause fatigue and feelings of being tired. Magestrol acetate can be associated with a decrease in morning cortisol levels. Keep in mind that adrenal insufficiency has been described in patients using magestrol acetate, but this side effect has been observed in case reports only. So in regards to this 12-year-old boy, what would you tell his parents? What would your recommendations be? I would tell his parents that he likely has a low health-related quality of life due to his body mass index, which is low. And that may explain why he's become withdrawn and feels that he looks different from his friends. Again, we will discuss with the family the importance of nutrition. In terms of using an appetite stimulant, I would tell the family there's minimal information available. There is information regarding two medications, cyproheptadine hydrochloride and magestrol acetate. However, I would tell the parent that there is only short-term data and long-term efficacy is not known. We would then discuss other potential therapeutic options, such as gastrostomy use. Dr. Paul, thank you for today's cases and discussion. And let me shift gears on you now and ask you to look to the future for us. What do you see happening to help provide better management of nutritionally compromised patients with CF? We're seeing several things for the future. There's increasing evidence that good nutrition is very important in the management of patients with cystic fibrosis. Good nutrition early in life likely affects long-term pulmonary function as well as lifespan. So what does the future hold? Well, I think we're going to see more information about how to appropriately dose PERT in patients with cystic fibrosis based on the study that we reviewed. We want to find a dosing regimen that allows for maximal intestinal absorption while at the same time preventing side effects such as fibrosing colonopathy. Additionally, the research that's recently been done on protein absorption is intriguing. Looking at patients with cystic fibrosis with and without PERT use suggests that we still do not fully understand how these medications such as PERT work and expect more understanding of these absorption pathways in patients with cystic fibrosis will be more fully elucidated over time. We need to and will continue to strive to have an increased understanding of the risk factors for the morbidity and mortality of patients with cystic fibrosis. Although the articles that we looked at today looked at children with cystic fibrosis, there are very obvious adult correlations. We did talk about the fact that poor nutrition can decrease health-related quality of life in patients with cystic fibrosis, and we need to do more work to determine what patients are at highest risk based on their age or their gender or their pulmonary status. Other aspects to consider would be exposure to newborn screening, in other words, making a diagnosis of cystic fibrosis earlier. And perhaps we can do modeling to allow us to look at nutritional factors such as BMI to address underlying pulmonary status to identify those patients who are high risk early on in the medical care. And then we can allocate resources of care appropriately. In this regard, the Cystic Fibrosis Foundation patient database is likely very beneficial. And finally, we really do not know if appetite stimulants are a helpful adjunct in nutrition care of patients with cystic fibrosis. They appear to work in the short term, but their long-term efficacy is really unknown. And keep in mind, only two appetite stimulants, cyproheptadine hydrochloride and magestrol acetate, have been studied in people with cystic fibrosis in short-term trials, so we do not know how effective other appetite stimulant medications are. Well, thank you for sharing your insights, doctor. I'd like to wrap things up now by reviewing today's discussion in light of our learning objectives. Uh, so to begin, explaining how appropriate PERT dosing is associated with improved BMI as well as both protein and fat absorption. We address this topic today by discussing that higher, but at the same time appropriate, PERT dosing is associated with an improvement of body mass index, or BMI, in children with cystic fibrosis. We also discuss that PERT dosing has been shown to improve protein absorption in individuals with cystic fibrosis when compared to healthy controls. When looking at PERT dosing, 
we want to make sure we have an adequate PERT dose without having the dose too high, placing the patient at risk of fibrosing colonopathy, which is a serious complication of overuse of PERT. And our second objective, how health-related quality of life is improved in individuals with CF with a good nutritional status, and conversely, why poor nutrition and a low BMI is a risk factor for mortality, particularly in adolescents with CF. We looked at two studies today. We discussed and found that health-related quality of life is lower in children with cystic fibrosis if they have poor nutritional parameters compared to cystic fibrosis peers who have improved parameters. This is important for early identification of patients at risk. And we also discussed that a low body mass index, or BMI, combined with an impaired pulmonary status increases the risk of mortality, and this is determined using a multivariate analysis of adolescents with cystic fibrosis. These risk factors should be considered when evaluating a patient with cystic fibrosis in regards to their nutritional status. And finally, the current evidence about the use of appetite stimulants to improve weight gain. We discussed today that appetite stimulants only have been studied in the short term, and long-term nutritional effects on body mass index in patients with cystic fibrosis is unknown, and more research is needed. Appetite stimulants are a short-term therapy, and if longer-term nutritional therapy is needed, we may need to consider other options, such as working with a feeding therapist for a younger child, or consider nasogastric or gastrostomy placement. Dr. John Pohl from the University of Utah, thank you for participating in this eCystic Fibrosis Review Podcast. Well, thank you for inviting me, and it's been a real pleasure talking to you today. To receive CME credit for this activity, please take the post-test at www.ecysticfibrosisreview.org forward slash test. This podcast is presented in conjunction with the eCystic Fibrosis Review newsletter, a peer-reviewed literature review certified for CME CE credit, emailed monthly to clinicians treating patients with cystic fibrosis. This activity has been developed for the CF care team, including pulmonologists, pediatric pulmonologists, gastroenterologists, pediatricians, infectious disease specialists, respiratory therapists, dietitians, nutritionists, pharmacists, nurses and nurse practitioners, physical therapists, and others involved in the care of patients with cystic fibrosis. There are no fees or prerequisites for this activity. This activity has been planned and implemented in accordance with the essential areas and policies of the Accreditation Council for Continuing Medical Education through the joint sponsorship of the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine and the Institute for Johns Hopkins Nursing. The Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine is accredited by the ACCME to provide continuing medical education for physicians. The Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine designates this enduring material for a maximum of 0.5 AMA PRA Category 1 credits. Physicians should claim only the credit commensurate with the extent of their participation in this activity. The Institute for Johns Hopkins Nursing is accredited as a provider of continuing nursing education by the American Nurses Credentialing Center's Commission on Accreditation. For nurses, this 0.5 contact hour educational activity is provided by the Institute for Johns Hopkins Nursing. Each podcast carries a maximum of 0.5 contact hour. This educational resource is provided without charge, but registration is required. To register to receive eCystic Fibrosis Review via email, please go to our website, www.ecysticfibrosisreview.org. The opinions and recommendations expressed by faculty and other experts whose input is included in this program are their own. This enduring material is produced for educational purposes only. Use of the names of the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine and the Institute for Johns Hopkins Nursing implies review of educational format, design, and approach. Please review the complete prescribing information for specific drugs, combinations of drugs, or use of medical equipment, including indication, contraindications, warnings, and adverse effects before administering therapy to patients. E-Cystic Fibrosis Review is supported by educational grants from AbbVie, Gilead Sciences Incorporated, and Vertex Pharmaceuticals.
This program is copyright with all rights reserved by the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine and the Institute for Johns Hopkins Nursing.